And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show devoted to Marvel Comics' Man Without Fear, Blind Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, Daredevil, as well as his enemies and allies. I am J. David Weeder, your host, but you can call me Dave, and this show is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. And right up front, I'll apologize for the delay on this episode, though Paul Hicks says I don't have to. I'm polite like that, Paul. But this episode got shuffled around trying to get it into the right uh, slot, really, because I want to alternate with Paul Spataro's Is It Jaws on Sunday, because... Well, there's a rule in podcasting, nobody competes with Spataro. You'll also notice that this is not episode 95, nor is it covering Daredevil Father. No, this is episode 105, covering something else. The renumbering comes uh, over a, a ruling. I got overruled by the Demanza Corps lawyers that the DDP episodes, when I was covering more broad topics, do have to count in the episode order. The main statute that was referenced was that Marvel Legacy is renumbering their books, so I must renumber it lines up, but I'm okay with this because it does put me at the tail end of my official Demanza Corps contract. I I've now fulfilled the minimum number of episodes. I get to renegotiate my contract, and I'm very, very excited about the prospects. I might actually get a couch in here. But it's renumbered, which means we did miss our milestone episode 100, so this episode is our milestone episode 105. In other words, I slotted in here what I would have slotted in for episode 100. And if I'm being honest, I got to the end of Daredevil Father number 3. Daredevil showed up on a motorcycle in samurai gear, and I'm like, no, I'm done with this. Now I remember the hatred. But, speaking Speaking of Spataro and manners, Paul, while I was on a sabbatical from the Facebooks and the Twitters, had me on Is It Jaws itself. With my wife, Holly, we talked about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. A great time was had. There should be an upcoming episode where we talk about the next movie in the franchise, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So check that out right down the dial on 2TrueFreaks.com. Also, Ryan Daly had me on Gimme Those Star Wars to talk about various movies we would put a Star Wars spin on, including Roadhouse. And even more recently, Bob Fisher had me back on my old stomping grounds on Superman Forever Radio with Michael Bailey and John M. Wilson to discuss Justice League. I'll give you a slight spoiler on that. We liked it a lot. So just a few bits of housekeeping there. This is going to be a different episode because of the way I've structured it. So I've put Daredevil Father to the side. This week I want to bring in something that kind of bookends the first episode of this show in a big way. If we're going to celebrate a milestone, let's celebrate it right. So I brought in a ringer of sorts. I brought in Daredevil Season 1. No, no, not the Netflix show. I mean the graphic novel Daredevil Season 1, which I'm going to be covering in its entirety right after this podcast promo break. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. 
And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! Captain William Buck Rogers! And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Turn. In 2010, DC began publishing a series of hardcover books in a series called Earth One, beginning with Superman. These were reimagined versions of the characters, almost an ultimate DC universe, and they have met with some solid success. Superman Earth One sold out in its first printing. When Marvel saw this, they decided to emulate it with their Season 1 series of hardcover books, apparently not realizing that they already had an Ultimate Universe. So with an Ultimate Universe, which was created with fresh continuity to capture the attention of a fresh audience, apparently everybody else needed an Ultimate Ultimate Universe. The Season 1 series included the decent Spider-Man Season 1, the Middle of the Road Hulk Season 1, and the lackluster Doctor Strange Season 1, and this week's book, Daredevil Season 1, released on April 25th, 2012. It's a hardcover book with a cover by Julian Totino Tedesco. We have Daredevil in his yellow costume lunging at the reader from atop a chimney as his billy club line zips around him and pigeons take flight behind him. This is a fully painted cover, and Tedesco's style isn't as photorealistic as, uh, say, Alex Ross or Joe Jusco, but far from as surreal and interpretive as somebody like Bill Sienkiewicz. Sienkiewicz, however you say it. Tedesco did most, if not all, of the season one covers, and they vary in their effectiveness. It is nice to have a cohesive vision to them, but they all share a certain awkwardness. For example, Daredevil's color is a yellow background, with Daredevil in his yellow and brown costume. It's yellow on yellow. The word jaundice comes to mind. And what the hell is with the pigeons? Is this is this some like cheap version of a John Woo movie? Ultimately what happens and what happens with all these covers is that they're generic. But it's like the epitome of generic. It's nearly perfectly generic down to the Billy Club line which does its job but doesn't grab the viewer. And with all of the pigeons and the frown on Daredevil's face, I can't unsee Bert from Sesame Street in Daredevil's costume. But you know throw in Ernie as Foggy Nelson and okay, no I need to stop that train of thought before some puppet parody slash fiction gets written. Within this cover is a massive 100-page tale, written by Anthony Johnson, with art by Wellington Alves or Elves? Alvis? Alvis has left the building. It is available on Comixology, the Marvel app, uh, Marvel Unlimited, and Kindle. So to break down the synopsis, I shall begin with the fact that it's lengthy, and I've condensed it, without omitting important bits. But the synopsis goes as follows. The book opens with a single page giving us Matt's relationship with Jack, the accident and his enhanced senses and Matt at Jack's grave. Then it speeds ahead to the present day where Daredevil in his yellow duds busts into Fogwell's gym in pursuit of his father's killers. As expected, he overtakes the Fixer and Slade at a subway station where the Fixer drops dead of a heart attack. So far, same story. But there is a deviation. After the fight, Daredevil makes a late night stop to light a candle at St. Finian of the Clannard Catholic Church in Hell's Kitchen. Father Samuel Mullen finds Daredevil in the sanctuary and the man without fear declines confession as he is one of the good guys. He also assures Father Mullen that despite what 
the newspaper will say the next day, he did not kill a man. He sought justice, not revenge. As Daredevil swings through the night, he feels a pang of guilt for the Fixer. Had he been faster or stronger, then his father's killer would have faced actual justice. The next day at the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Matt and Foggy are discussing the recent announcement from City Councilman Bill Doyle to run for mayor when visitors arrive. Those visitors are the Fantastic Four, surprising no one. They want Matt and Foggy to look over documents for the Baxter building. That leads to Daredevil into conflict with Electro. Electro is not a pushover, but Daredevil is able to take him down at Radio City Music Hall thanks to the sprinkler system. The next day, Father Mullen comes to visit Matt Murdock as he and his congregation are being evicted from the church once the lease ends. Thing is, the lease was set for another 20 years, but that paperwork just vanished. Being the good Catholic boy he is, Matt agrees to help Father Mullen, who mentions seeing Jack's last fight. As Matt and Father Mullen talk, Karen fields a call from a man named Owsley, and Foggy declines the caller's request for representation. Shortly after that, Karen disappears, and Daredevil goes to the top of the Empire State Building to filter out all noises in the city and find Karen. He does find her in the clutches of the mutated and deformed Owsley, and Daredevil battles the villain only to lose him in the water, but Karen is safe. On Father Mullen's case, Foggy and Matt meet with the councilman Bill Doyle, who is dismissive of Matt and comes off as a shady, shady cat when asked about potentially destroyed paperwork. Later, Daredevil faces the mind-controlling Kilgrave, the Purple Man, and saves Karen from his clutches, and that's two she owes him. After that, Daredevil happens upon a strange man leaving Father Mullen's church, and Hornhead snoops on a phone call that the priest makes. In the call, Mullen, who Daredevil realizes is injured, tells somebody to back off, he's paid his penance, and the oddest thing, he uses the term little brother. As Foggy vows to propose marriage to Karen, a new villain, the Matador, publicly shows up Daredevil, much to his embarrassment, and just as his superhero star is rising. He shakes off the defeat, and Daredevil spies on Councilman Doyle again, who takes a meeting with mob enforcer named Stuart Nagel. But when a gargoyle fails to support Daredevil's weight, he alerts Doyle and Nagel to his presence and is forced to hightail it out of there. Daredevil is tired of being beaten and decides to fight on his own terms, so Daredevil concocts a plan. As Matt Murdock, he draws Matador into a trap by claiming that the villain and Daredevil are one and the same, stabbing at the villain's ego. With the odds and the environment in Daredevil's favor, he finally bests the Matador and then changes back to Matt Murdock to take confession with Father Mullen. Matt accuses Mullen of hiding something since he can't find any record of Mullen's family, and Mullen tells Matt that he knows Murdock is Daredevil. Mullen kicks Matt out of his church and hopefully God can forgive Matt because Father Mullen can't. Despite this, Matt continues to work on the case and as Matt faces Mr. Fear and the Enforcers, learning a bit about the power of fear along the way, Karen does some legwork. Matt tricks the mob enforcer Nagel and Councilman Doyle into a meeting in public and Karen snaps pictures of them to use as leverage. But they get wise to her. Even though Karen makes a getaway, she leaves behind a Nelson and Murdoch business card. Father Mullen's case goes to hearing, and Matt realizes that Foggy is missing, and based on the smell of Foggy's cologne on Councilman Doyle, Foggy is kidnapped. Matt tracks Councilman Doyle back to Father Mullen's church, where Foggy and Father Mullen are being held by Nagel and his crew of goons. Matt suits up and decides to fight on his own terms again, striking the goons and Nagel from the darkness, but the Councilman demands to see Daredevil. The Man Without Fear obliges, debuting his red costume, a look that causes Doyle to freeze up in fear and Daredevil beats him silly. And that's when it all comes out. Father Samuel Mullen was born Samuel Doyle, the older brother of Bill Doyle. Samuel left New York to hide from his brother when Bill killed their father, and Bill was trying to push Samuel out of the city rather than risk the revelation of his deep, dark secret. Upon learning that Bill Doyle murdered his father, Daredevil becomes enraged and begins to beat the councilman. But he comes back to his senses and remembers that Daredevil exists to serve justice, not vengeance. Bill Doyle goes to jail along with the mob enforcers, leaving the church to continue to operate, and Daredevil has found his calling. The book closes with Daredevil thinking that he will face a lot of crazes and villains, but... 
bring them on. He is not afraid. All right, let's break this down. I've, I've split my notes into two distinct sections. I'm going to talk about the story first and then the art. Just because of the sheer length of this thing, it's easier to break it down that way. So I'm going to start by talking about the story notes. Right out of the gate, I'm going to acknowledge and tackle the similarity to Daredevil Yellow, a miniseries that I didn't finish covering because, well, reasons. Season 1 does take the overall tact of weaving a story through the events of the first six issues of the original Daredevil series. It isn't as stylized as Tim Sale's art, it doesn't linger on the touchy-feeling relationship between Karen and Matt, nor does it take six issues to tell its tale. In fact, Daredevil Season 1 is about 30 to 40 pages shorter overall and was conceived, designed, and intended to be read in one volume as a cohesive whole. While Daredevil Yellow was extremely decompressed, Daredevil Season 1 is so compressed it's bound to pop like a can of biscuit dough. I mean, just peel the layers and boom! Need proof of how compressed this book is, let's look at the first page, where we get an all-star Superman type of opening, giving us an overview of the origin in four panels. Four panels, people. It isn't complete, but perhaps might be an odd decision for a book that's tasked with bringing fresh readers to the character. But it does give us just enough to understand the tale. Then it's right to the assault on Fogwell's gym. Again, for us, the first time in this continuity, the ultimate ultimate Marvel, or whatever you want to call it. And Matt's inner monologue remembers Jack teaching him that if you can beat your fear, you can beat anything. Which is interesting since Matt is scared out of his gourd here. And that fear will cost him this round. Matt fails to really incite fear into the goons at Fogwell's gym, even as he continues crashing through the skylight, a little hint it might be the bumblebee color scheme of the costume, and let me comment here that this opening ties perfectly to the ending of this book overall. What we see in Daredevil Season 1 is the education and training period for Daredevil, screw-ups and all. Johnston establishes the book's thesis here, in the failure of Daredevil to effectively bring both the Fixer and Slade to real justice by jumping into this in a gung-ho, straightforward manner. By the end of the book, it's a very different Daredevil we see. We see a Daredevil tested and formed by these events, which is, well, kind of what you want in a pseudo-origin, your one type of story. By six pages into the book, we have covered the relevant parts of Daredevil's original first issue. Season 1 doesn't reinvent the wheel, even though it really could have. This could have easily gone the route of Man Without Fear and rerouted the timeline of events, without any future repercussions, by the way. But what we get is an embellishment on the first six issues. Between this telling, Daredevil Yellow, and even Uncanny Origins, the origin of Man Without Fear is slowly being put into the background, to the extent that it may not even be canon any longer. Which brings up an interesting question. Since I covered it early on in the show's life, should we ask, was Man of Fear necessary? Is it still relevant? Well, to an extent, the relevance is an easy answer, yes. Thanks to the television series taking a lot of its cues from Frank Miller's telling of the origin visually and in terms of tone, But even though I liked Man Without Fear, looking back on it, the origin was never broken. I mean, for all of its faults, Yellow proved that the original telling still had legs, and this book underlines that even more. For his part, Miller simply wanted to tell a tale, which was originally a pitch for a TV show anyway. He had the right artist on board. Whether the intent was actually to reinvent the origin or to tell just that standalone tale, it's become canon. At least it was for a while. How? Marvel editorial at the time made it so. The readers made it so. Ultimately, as a core origin for Daredevil, Man Without Fear wasn't necessary, but it sold. It may be relevant to the media tie-ins, but it was definitely a product of its time and the marketing department of Marvel in the 90s. And for the record, in and of itself, Man Without Fear is a fine read. I still love that book. Marketing just tried to fix something that wasn't broken then and isn't broken now. Ironically, while this book proves the standing validity of the original tales... And it is, in itself, unnecessary. 
but it does manage to make itself relevant, which I'm coming to, bear with me. After the assault on Fogwells, Matt heads to the church. St. Finian of the Clannard, St. Finian was a key figure to establishing the Celtic expansion of Catholicism. It makes sense that Matt would go to an Irish church, because we assume he is of Irish descent, and that's been more or less confirmed with here and there dialogue. However, for the record, the name Murdoch has its origins in the Scottish tradition. The name is usually associated with the sea and roughly means protector of the sea. But it does have Irish offshoots, and apparently Jack is descended from one of those offshoots. So, Irish Catholic Matt Murdock, a church named after a key part of initiating the Irish Catholic Church, makes sense. Matt is lighting a candle, and it's unclear who it's for. Is it for Jack? Is it for the fixer? Is it for himself? After all, this whole endeavor is to an extent a failure. Matt didn't want the fixer dead. He wanted him behind bars. Period. Justice, not death, and this bothers Matt. He stews on it afterwards. This first outing is a lesson learned. Don't go charging in like a bull in a china shop. There needs to be a better way, but what is that way? And that forms the premise of the book, and Johnston also weaves in a completely original tale into the framework of the first six issues. Between what would be issue one and issue two, the character of Councilman Bill Doyle is introduced, and Matt is actually a supporter of the man until he meets him later in the book. They say never meet your heroes. Johnson has placed both Father Mullen and Bill Doyle on the board, and these two brothers, as it's later revealed, play on the faith aspect of Matt Murdock. Matt takes Mullen's case because of his Catholicism, his faith, and his faith in the church, but he finds in that a victim of circumstances in Father Mullen. Likewise, Matt begins with a political faith in Bill Doyle, which gets destroyed as he finds out just how corrupt the man is. To the core, and from the beginning, a broken faith that leads to a final trial by fire. On the surface, the Mullen case seems like it'll be a simple bit of paperwork, but in the end, it ends up bringing danger to the doorstep of Nelson and Murdoch. As expected, Daredevil takes on Electro, as we saw in issue number two. Matt realizes that to go up against this threat, he can't rely on strength, and he uses the old noggin. Daredevil also goes up against the Owl, and it's an amped-up version of the Owl. Daredevil almost gets killed when he lingers too long around Karen, but manages to pull out a sort of win. And just an additional note here, like Daredevil Yellow, Matt goes to the very top of the Empire State Building to try to get an, a pinpoint on Karen's location, if you will. I've been to the top of the Empire State Building, or at least to the Observation Deck, and you can't hear Jack or Squat from there. The distance, the, the space, it doesn't make sense, even with enhanced senses. Nope, I do not buy that concept, ladies and gentlemen. But let me come back to Councilman Bill Doyle, the main antagonist of the book in a lot of ways. Doyle manages to reveal his true self by dismissing Matt. Doyle speaks to Foggy and assumes that because Matt is blind, he must be a second stringer, and that shows a certain hubris that is very, very telling. Doyle also manages to dodge head-on questions about how the church's lease can just vanish. He doesn't set off Matt's lie detector, but Matt knows something is up. So again, never meet your heroes, and unfortunately, Matt met his. This was a man Matt hoped would benefit New York, but Matt is the man that the city needs, not the one it deserves. No, wait, that's a different thing. I shot myself in the foot right there, you know. You know what I mean, okay? Daredevil is the only one to do the right thing. And to save the day, Doyle is just a politician. Doyle is such a jackass that he sends his mob contact to rough up his own brother. He risks exposing himself for a simple beatdown. That is called peacocking. Now he's just showing off and flexing his muscles and measuring his penis. On top of dismissing a potential voter in his mayoral campaign because he is blind. 
He's no Wilson Fisk, that's for sure. Speaking of villains, while the subplot plays out, Daredevil also faces the Purple Man or Kilgrave, whichever you prefer, and Kilgrave has Karen. So Daredevil has saved her twice, and this time he nearly loses Purple Man while saving Karen. He's making rookie mistakes, and that is a good thing. It just keeps it interesting. And yes, he pulls out a win on the Purple Man, but it isn't easy. The Owl is vanished and is likely to show up again, and that isn't good because the Owl will certainly be looking for revenge. And that trend continues when Daredevil faces the Matador. Now, I'm on record. I've been very vocal about this. I think the Matador is the worst idea since some Brainiac gave Magic Johnson a talk show. I stand by that wholeheartedly and almost without reservation, and that reservation rests here in this book. If nothing else, I have to congratulate Anthony Johnson for making the Matador relevant in this tale and retroactively in the original fifth issue in a lot of ways. After getting beaten by the Matador, Daredevil realizes that he has been letting his enemies set the battlefield and that works to his disadvantage. So Daredevil takes the offensive and sets a trap and he preys on Matador's pride, which allows Daredevil to defeat the villain. That is an important lesson for Daredevil to learn, which pays off at the end of the book, as you see a theme forming. And you would think that Daredevil designing his trap, uh, based on the Bible verse Proverbs 16:18, which is the pride comes before the fall, that this would please Father Mullen. Nope. Mullen kicks Matt out of the church, and, you know, Mullen mentioning that he saw Jack's fight seems fairly ambiguous now. Remember when he laid that on Matt when he first went to Nelson and Murdoch, which means that if he knew Matt was Daredevil, by his voice, he must have been messing with Matt's mind. Why? To accuse Matt? To guilt him into helping? Was it a call for help? We may never know. At this point, though, Matt is deep into the case and sends Karen to snap pictures at Bryant Park. And this is a really nice park behind the public library in New York, by the way. It's also a park that's, you know, fairly large, but is also bordered on three sides by fairly busy midtown streets with food carts and a lot of foot traffic. Not a great place for a clandestine meeting but great for a heavily photographed meeting, and with that we get a red herring. While we expect Karen to be roped in and kidnapped, because that's kind of what she does, it's Foggy that gets taken, leading to the climax of the book, but before we get there, we get a villain represented that was totally omitted in Daredevil Yellow. Mr. Fear from issue 6, which becomes the last piece of the Daredevil puzzle when Hornhead uses Mr. Fear's own gas to defeat the enemy. This was where it kind of clicked for me, and I realized what Johnston was doing with the story in the moment when I realized why this book is actually superior to Daredevil Yellow on a story front. Let us look at the villains that are represented, because each one is a special lesson and a building block for Daredevil, just to review this. With the Fixer and Slade, Daredevil experienced his first trial by fire and failed as much as he succeeded. He was a novice, he went in guns a-blazing, Fixer died. But with Electro, Daredevil was outclassed on the power scale and his fists weren't enough to cut it. He had to think his way through this or he was toast. Quite literally, could have been toast. With the Owl, Daredevil realized that he had to maintain a focus when in battle. One little distraction such as Karen's perfume and it could be curtains for the Crimson Crusader. With the Purple Man, Karen's imminent danger taught Daredevil not to mix his personal life with the superhero world. With great loss comes great sadness and Purple Man could have gotten away. With the Matador, Daredevil realized that he had to set the battlefield and fight on his own terms, not the enemies. And finally with Mr. Fear, Daredevil learns how to wield psychology as a weapon, which leads to a final showdown in the book where all of these lessons come to the forefront. Let me lay this out. Matt uses his brains to trick Doyle into leading him to where Foggy's being held. Despite Foggy being in danger, Matt stays focused and logical. He takes out the guards one by one from the shadows, setting the stage. And when Daredevil comes out of the darkness, it is a stark red suit that scares the bejesus out of Doyle. 
It's one of the best justifications for the change to the red suit, psychological warfare. The momentary fear gives enemies enough pause to allow a handy advantage for Daredevil. But despite that, Daredevil faces one final barrier. When he learns that Bill Doyle killed his own father. For Matt, who started this because of the loss of his father, this flips his switch. This was a masterstroke. For all of the lessons that he's learned, Daredevil still has a bit of the sad kid inside him and that kid has become angry over the years. Doyle took his father for granted to the point of killing him, and the man may have been abusive, but that was for the justice system to deal with. This doesn't compute for Matt, and he nearly beats Doyle to death, but he realizes the error of his ways and turns away from temptation, and that is the moment that makes Daredevil a hero. That is the dividing line between Daredevil and the Punisher, and it is the final point of Antony Johnston's thesis. The book begins with a novice Daredevil dropping into action to seek justice for his father and ends with him being redeemed by justice versus revenge, with the central theme being the father. And by the end of the book, we have a more polished, educated, and well-trained Daredevil. Bad guys punished, good guys saved, and a heroic future ahead. Now, let's step back and talk about the art and presentation of the issue. Alves or Alvis has a clean style and it's appealing. Don't get me wrong, but it's not distinctive. He has a bit of a Mark Bagley vibe, but without the recognizable elements. I don't want to use the word generic because that's not it. I think that's too critical, but it's fairly basic in one sense without being too basic. The layouts are extremely compressed, which is necessary for such a dense story in such a confined space, but even with the expanded page count, there's still a lot crammed into this. I'll give him credit, the art actually aids the storytelling and marries it more than Tim Sale's art in Daredevil Yellow. As gorgeous as Sale's art was, it was grandstanding. Beautiful eye-catching grandstanding, but grandstanding nonetheless. Where Alves shines is in the slow, quiet moments, such as Daredevil at St. Finian's, in the candlelight, or leaping away from the church with the moon behind him. Alves also puts the yellow costume to good use. The yellow is a bit more muted, and Matt's frame is a kind of big, but also sleek, so the fit of the costume feels more appropriate. However, when the Fantastic Four arrive, they look less dynamic than they should. A bit too real world. This is the only instance that I missed Tim Sale in terms of the comparison if you're putting the two head to head. However, there are some spots that kind of made me raise an eyebrow. For example, a shot of Daredevil crouched on a gargoyle with bats flying behind him struck a spawn note. Later, Daredevil stands with one leg lifted on a ledge, and it's, at least to me, a blatant swipe of the Jim Lee renditions of Batman and Superman in the same pose. But there are a pair of villains that offset the winks and nods. The owl is a bit redesigned, to be leaner and meaner with talons for feet, so more of a mutant than before. Likewise, and I would have never, in my wildest dreams, have ever, ever thought these words would come out of my mouth, but the matador looks kind of awesome. Yes, I said it, the matador looks awesome, with a redesign that adds skulls to the mix and more personality to his face, he looks cool. Likewise, the rendering of William Doyle makes him come across as appropriately slimy, nefarious, and kind of charming at the same time. He has a broad smile that makes the reader very certain that Doyle has a knife hidden behind his back and he's ready to put it in your back. But I have to say, and maybe this is personal preference, but the art really begins to pop when Daredevil dons the red costume. I don't know why, but Alv's line work just fits the red suit like a glove fits a hand, and if the glove fits, we cannot acquit. Wait. Anyway, the final shot of Daredevil with Bullseye, Electra, and Kingpin in the background really ends up being the money shot. I don't want to unfairly saddle Elves' art with the term generic. It isn't. It's good. I like it. It serves the story very well. There's no ambiguity in the scenes. Take away the speech balloons and you follow the story. And I have to give kudos to the consistency across all 100 pages. It remains level all the way through, but his rendition of Daredevil doesn't sear itself into my brain. Now with that, I kind of want to segue to the final verdict. 
Daredevil Season 1 lacks the style and notoriety of Daredevil Yellow, and the most immediate thing that an experienced Daredevil fan would do is compare the two. I've compared them, and Daredevil Season 1 is a tighter and more focused and polished tale that really could have benefited from Daredevil Yellow's page count. Now, paradoxically, the page count and decompressed nature is what I didn't like about Daredevil Yellow. Johnston weaves a well-rounded education and training period into the tale, which retroactively sheds new light on the original first six issues of Daredevil's book. We also have a new story into the open space between those issues, which deal with the themes of faith and family, and the idea of the father ties perfectly the end to the beginning. The art is clean and straightforward. It does its job in the storytelling department, which isn't an easy task with all of the story beats in a relatively confined space. However, the art makes too many references which become distracting at times and and laughable at other moments. Whether intentional or not, these take the reader out of the story. However, the big question is, given its purpose of attracting new readers, would I give Daredevil Season 1 to somebody who's interested in Daredevil? I sat and thought long and hard on this, and the answer is no. And not because of a quality issue, because the book ends up being fairly well-rounded and is overall enjoyable and tightly plotted. It would service a new Daredevil reader just fine. However, in the age of essentials, masterworks, epic collections, and comicsology, I would default to the original comics, as uneven as they are. The main reason is there are issues after the first six, and a path that can be followed beyond the Yellow Era, and I don't want to deprive a new fan of that experience. It's not the quality that stops me from recommending this to the uninitiated, it's the chance at perpetuity. At the other end of the spectrum, for those who have been around Daredevil to the initiated, this is a nice little read, and the season one books have been remaindered, so you're likely to find this one in the cheap bin somewhere. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's definitely worth checking out, as it is above average, it just doesn't blow the lid off the Daredevil concept. So I place this book at the upper portion of the middle of the road. Good, satisfying, but not great, and that's my final verdict. Truth be told, the thing I loved most about revisiting this was that it ties directly into the first episode of the show, which for a milestone 105th episode is pretty seminal, pretty logical. And I know I've told part of this story before, but this show began as sort of a natural gestation as part of my weekly drive, just to clear my head and think about things and just relax for a little bit before beginning the weekend. And I began thinking about Daredevil, how, you know, he's a character that I could relate to, that I feel like I could actually write the character. And I remember the moment it became real, that this show was going to happen. And I revisited the spot where that epiphany occurred. It's at an intersection. It's not an impressive intersection. There's nothing special about it. But it's a spot that seared into my brain because I was stopped at a stoplight. There was droplets of water on my windshield. It had been a light rain. And the red light reflected in the droplets, just magnifying it in multiple spots. And that red really made me say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move forward with the Daredevil podcast. And that was in late August, early September of 2013. And I kind of planned out a few episodes and... I did the first episode, which was meant to be a pilot. The original first episode of this show was never actually meant to be heard, at least not while I was writing it, recording it, editing it. It was just intended to give me some legs, give me an idea of how the show would flow. And yet, by the time it was done, I felt it was satisfactory enough not to go back and re-record it, and I released the first episode on November 3rd, 2013. We recently, about a month ago, had the four-year anniversary of the show, and, and, you know, things did not go the way I expected them to. Much like John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans, or the best-laid plans of mice and men never go, I don't know what the quote would be, but things didn't go, and they, they won't go the way I expect them to from time to time. But I remember I bought a bottle of wine called the Velvet Devil. And as I released the first episode in the overnight hours of November 2nd, so it made its way to iTunes, all that jazz, to make sure everything worked properly for the next day, before I, where I shared it on social media, 
I opened that bottle of wine and I toasted to the first episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast all the way back, way back when, four years ago. Here we are releasing the 105th episode four years and one month later, which, yes, if you're keeping count, is a little off from where it should be. But along the way, uh, thinking about that glass of wine, I bought a second bottle with a 2013 vintage, which I will open once the show wraps up its run. To celebrate... What's well, been an amazing experience, to be honest with you. I mean, 105th episode, I do want to commemorate it. There have been a lot of fantastic memories with this show. I never would have thought that people would respond more to the Gene Cole and Stan Lee stuff than the Frank Miller stuff. In fact, that's why I put the Frank Miller stuff in the first full year. Because I figured as I went and covered other things, people would be asking, when are you going to cover Miller? When are you going to cover Miller? But to my surprise, there was more draw to covering the classic stuff. And that was right up my alley. Don't get me wrong, there were episodes that darn near killed me. That Batman special, episode 35, was... Well, badly planned on my part. I literally recorded and finished the editing minutes before sending it out, which led to exhaustion, which led to me kind of putting down the podcasting mic for a while because I'd pushed myself just a little bit too far with that one. In retrospect, I would have done that a little bit differently. But what's been amazing is some of the revelations. Meeting the other fans through this show, having this show be a part of regular listening for a lot of listeners. I mean, for example, Kyle Benning listening to me shoveling snow every year. Hey, hi, Kyle. But I think the perspectives that I've gotten on this character, the the chance to really read some of these stories and, and tear them apart, have been extraordinary. Some things in my perceptions have changed completely. When I began the show, I hated Karen Page, hated her, thought she was obnoxious and whiny and petty, and some of that I still feel, but at the same time I've grown to understand Karen. I see her path, and... She's sympathetic. Conversely, I've learned through that that Matt was kind of the the really bitchy, petty one because he would tell Karen he'd quit to be with her, with her accepting his blindness and all. But he would go on telling her he would be with her and saying he's going to quit being Daredevil and start a relationship again and again and again and then renege on that promise. I got to the point where I sympathize with Karen, like this dude does not want to be with her. I realized Matt's not the greatest boyfriend in his treatment of Heather who I still don't like, but I understand more. And let's never forget Heather. Heather Glenn. And of course, Rico! He's a disco man. Rico was probably the character find of the century. we It's been right under our nose, and we gotta just take a moment to appreciate Rico! Likewise, the yellow costume has endeared itself to me as a time that was simpler, more straightforward, where things weren't quite as muddy for the man without fear. And yes, it only lasted for seven issues. The first six issues of Daredevil and Amazing Spider-Man number 16, but that period was Daredevil's is trial by fire, as far as readers were concerned. The book was different, it was unique, you had a blind superhero, it was either going to sink or swim, and it swam to 380 issues plus some annuals in the first volume. So amazingly, my perspective changed completely. And there have been some great runs on this show that I was very excited about. And looking back, I'm like, man, I wish I had some of that energy. For example, the the whole six-episode stretch of Daredevil 101 was done in about two weeks because I was just so excited. I was just knocking those episodes out. The rainy day episodes, those were done in about a week just because I was so enthralled in it. And it was just such a blast. I was just so happy with season one of the show hitting people on the same page. Suddenly, everybody was coming into my arena. It's been like that for a couple of years with Daredevil, with Wonder Woman. Everybody's coming around to Dave's way of thinking. 
But I have to say, one of my favorite aspects of the show is when somebody writes in and says, hey, I'm a, I'm a Daredevil fan now. You've, you've turned me around. Or when somebody like Gene Hendricks says, I'm not a Daredevil fan, but your, your enthusiasm is contagious. Going back to that episode one, I never started this show. In fact, I blatantly avoided trying to be a Daredevil apologist. That kind of ruined a Superman show for me. I think if I took on the perspective of, I like Daredevil, you should too, that could have been dangerous. The show never would have made it past the first nine episodes, I bet. But coming in and just saying, here's what I love about Daredevil. I put it on the table. Here's what's great. Here's what's not so great. You can take it or leave it. I think that has done wonders for the show over its run. At this point, Daredevil's no longer the B-list hero that he was when I started this show, thanks to Netflix primarily. People are discovering this character. He's, he's a marquee name now. Daredevil merchandise is becoming really common, where it was really frustrating to try to find back when this show started. Now, I'm not so arrogant as I think this show had anything to do with that. Netflix did, and the quality of those two seasons so far. But I'm glad to be doing this show during a time when Daredevil experiences this huge renaissance. If there is a single thing I'm thankful for in this milestone 105th episode, it's you, the listener, the support you listeners have brought. From other podcasters like The Irredeemable Shag supporting the show, to W. Blaine Dowler, to Kyle Benning, to Gene Hendricks, you've all been fantastic. And I've been at some low points here with this show. Some frustrations just kind of blocked what have you, but you've always been there wanting more but not demanding more. And that will be something that I appreciate and something that makes this 105 episodes something special, an special experience in my lifetime. And this past week when I revisited that intersection where the where the rubber hit the road and I decided I'm going to do a Daredevil podcast, I thought about that. That I would have never guessed at that point that there would be 105 episodes of this show or that I would have one of the best audiences in the world, the most dedicated. If there's one surprise, one gift the show has has brought over the 105 episodes we've done here, it is that. It is you, the listener, and the friends of this show. And how can I commemorate 105 episodes without thanking my hosts? 2TrueFreaks.com and the DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, who has yet to come back to me with a counteroffer on my contract. Bumping over the two true freaks raised the visibility of the show, and it put me in line with a group of friends. And I'm not talking about online friends. These are my friends. I've spent weekends with them. I enjoy their company. They're like brothers in arms. It's hard to do a commemorative anniversary episode without saying thank you. Thank you to the two true freaks and the people who've come to me into the show from twotruefreaks.com. I guess if there is one lesson, one word that boils down where I'm at with 105 episodes under my belt with this show, it is thankful. I am thankful for the last few years in the 105 episodes. And I'm feeling so, so sappy and so fuzzy and warm here that I want to share a secret. It's one of my deeper secrets, but I feel like the listeners of this show have earned me just bringing this out and putting it on the table. What I want to tell you is, what the crap? Hello, J. David Weeder. It is I, Lord Darkseid. And me, Clyde, his favorite parademon. What you guys cannot be here. This is a Marvel podcast. You're not allowed to be here. It's in the contract. Oh, J. David Weeder, you must know that Lord Darkseid goes where he wants. I live the thug life. Yeah, yeah, the thug life. That's how he rolls. In his bins. Counting his Benjamins. Whoa, whoa, settle down, Clyde. You've overplayed your hand once again. All right, look, guys, I tolerated you when you were on Superman Forever Radio, but this is a Marvel podcast. This is my 105th episode. This is a big, momentous occasion. I'm sharing my heart with my listeners. J. David Weeder, prepare yourself. I want you to sit down. I, I am sitting. That's that's what I do, Darkseid. I sit down to record. I'm going to ask you to be respectful and realize that your new master 
is speaking. That's right. Sit down and shut your trap. Lord Darkseid is going to talk to you about legals. That is uh, legalities, Clyde. Legals, legalities. Who am I? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a blind lawyer. Heh, keeping it with the theme. Oh, oh, good one. Good one. I like that one. J. David Weeder. The fact is, with your Demonzo Court contract coming to an end, you now are mine. If you'll remember, when Superman Forever Radio was in its heyday, you signed a contract saying that you would serve Lord Darkseid. Yep, you're uh, totally and completely Lord Darkseid's property. What are you talking about? That's insane. That is insane. I signed no such contract. Oh, but I will draw your attention over here to this nice pamphlet. If you review that real quick, that does say that upon reneging on your Demonzo Corps contract, you are to serve Lord Darkseid. I mean, that's just what it says in plain English. Look, I, I don't know what language this is. It is not English. I can tell you that. Not English at all. Oh, I, I see that Clyde has made an error. Clyde, Clyde, what are you doing? Get over here. I'm looking for Paul Spataro. He must be around here somewhere. Clyde, you ignorant bastard. Paul Spataro has a restraining order against you for one, and for two, this legal brief is not in English. You promised me it would be in English. Well, excuse me. I Again, I don't know anything about legalities what? here on Earth. What? No, 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 but, uh, but, uh, no, but, but, no, no uh, excuses. Either way, it's all perfectly legal. We can work that out. Uh, for now, I'm going to banish you to the dark side of Apocalypse. Um, happy trails, and I appreciate your time. What are you talking about? All of Apocalypse is the dark side. Where are you? What? No, let me go. Let me go. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? No, 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 no. Well, now that J. David Weeder's gone, I guess the uh, microphone is still, as they call it, hot. As hot as the Apocalypse fire pits. Let's be honest on that one. You worked a little too hard for that one. A little too hard. Yeah, it was a bit of a stretch, I will completely admit. So, Clyde, we know how to get this episode out the door, because the world needs to know that J. David Weeder is my prisoner, and that the whole planet will pretty much be under my rule anytime soon, because of J. David Weeder. Yep, gonna rule the entire world, like a Tears for Fears song. Uh, what have I told you about the Tears for Fears references? You gotta drop that. You gotta drop it nowish. Can I help it that I like good music from the 80s? Peter Cetera, anyone? We can't talk about Peter Cetera. He's still missing, if you know what I mean. Well, maybe you should sit down there and tell the nice people what we're going to do with J. David Weeder. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not ready to reveal my plans just yet for J. David Weeder. Suffice it to say, this is the final episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, as he is now the property of Lord Darkseid. Uh, we're going to get that Weeder boy a nice tattoo to show his propertyness. Is that a word? No, propertyness is not a word, but we will get him a nice tattoo, perhaps like a tramp stamp. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, tramp stamp. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Lord Darkseid. I am a Sagittarius, and I am the ruler of Apocalypse. I am soon to be the ruler of the planet Earth. And each and every one of you should be feeling honored right now to be witness to this momentous occasion, the beginning of my plan to dominate Apocalypse, Earth, and we might get like Pluto in there somewhere. No, 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 no. Pluto's not a planet anymore. We can't dominate a non-planet. Oh, it's not? It's, it's downgraded again? Okay, I, I thought. Anyway, uh, maybe we'll take over Uranus. <laughs> See what I did there? You went for the lowbrow comedy on that one, Darkseid. You went for the lowbrow. Everybody's a critic. Ladies and gentlemen, witness the end. The end of an era. I am Lord Darkseid, signing off. Um, this is awkward. Uh, maybe you should put in some fitting music for a finale. Yeah, this is very awkward. What, what did you have in mind? You have a track? Maybe a, not a Tears for Fears track? Maybe a Peter Cetera track or something? I have just the thing. Oh, good choice. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of J. David Weeder, this is Darkseid, signing off for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Remember, the world is mine. <laughs>
And thanks to common law legislation, it's also half mine. Check your legislation. You get like 1% of what's mine. Anyway, the world is ours. J. David Weeder is ours. Dark side out. And Clyde is out too. Was it really necessary to step on my ending there? I had a perfect sign-off and you had to go and ruin it. I thought we were partners in this. I'm sorry. I misunderstood the relationship. Shame on me. Of course, there's one thing we agree on. Michael, Michael Ironside, Ironside forever. forever. Let the music play. He took the midnight train going.